Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Essential 11. As always, we are brought to you by Acton Academy, Acton Academy Placer, Apogee Strong, and our friends over at Discover Praxis. Also want to uh, let you know this episode is also being brought to you by Liberated, uh, and it is a, a phenomenal education conference that is coming up. I'm going to shoot some more details uh, over to you. Uh, at the release of our next uh, episode, but it's something I'll be speaking at and some of my past guests will be speaking at as well. Um, it should be phenomenal. Speaking of phenomenal, I uh, got to have an amazing guest uh, here with our young men of Apogee Strong. Uh, the man goes by the name Steve Maxwell. And Steve is somebody who has been on my radar for probably 25 years. Uh, just a, a wealth of knowledge and experience and information specifically in the health and wellness space. Uh, the man is a, a legend in this field. Uh, I remember Joe Rogan having him on the podcast years and years and years ago, one of his first guests, uh, because this man is just, uh, he's already done it all. And uh, he shares a lot of that story with us today uh, and answers a couple questions as well from the young men of Apogee Strong. So hope you enjoy the conversation and uh, some of these great stories from Mr. Steve Maxwell. There we go. I oh, it. there it is. There we go. Beautiful. I knew we'd Technology, get it. Technology, isn't it grand? It really is, right? <laughs> it can It can be. Um, it is great for something like this. Mr. Maxwell, thank you for joining us today, sir. Um, it is It is an absolute honor uh, to have you here. I, I personally have been following you for years, uh, and I just I, I have the utmost respect for you. So thank you for joining us today, sir. Thank you. I appreciate oh. that. Oh, absolutely. Well, I just want to give you some context, make sure you have a good idea of what we're doing here. And then um, we want to dive in and, and learn about you. And then these gentlemen on here are going to have better questions uh, than I do. So uh, are you familiar with, with Tim Kennedy at all? Uh, mixed martial artist and uh, military operator? Yes, I am. I actually saw a couple of his fights in the old UFC. Okay, beautiful. So Tim and I developed this mentorship program, uh, and it is all about good men pouring into young men. So these young men on the call have committed to a full year of projects, challenges, readings, uh, meeting every week and, and talking to amazing mentors such as yourself. Uh, and then we record this and it goes out as, as an episode of the Essential 11, which is heard all over the world as well. So it's an wow. honor have you here and, and uh, you know, you got a bunch I'm of- I'm honored to be amongst such luminaries. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bunch of, of amazing young men. So like I was saying at the beginning, I've been following you forever. I've been reading your articles. I've been watching the stuff you put on. So you are, um, you know, you're, you're a wealth of knowledge. You are a legend in this industry. But what I respect the most is that uh, you are just- a good human being who leads by example. There's no hypocrisy there. Um, you you live what you what you preach, uh, and I just appreciate that so much. So I'd love to, if you wouldn't mind, giving a few minutes of of just kind of a background of a little bit about your story and and what you've been doing over these past you know 40, 50 years. If we can give these guys just a little bit of insight, um, gosh, that would be a fantastic way to start. Well. My head's getting too big for the uh, <laughs> earbuds. Thanks for the introduction. I, I have been in the fitness and uh, grappling industry, you might say, uh, since 1964. I got my start in Carlisle, Pennsylvania as a young boy and uh, was fascinated with wrestling from a very early age. 
I wasn't very good at any other sports. I tried, you know, I was too small for football. I lacked the speed or the endurance to be a, a, a runner or cross country runner or you know, no, no speed. Um, you know, I played those sports, but I wasn't good. Yeah. And uh, of course, I grew up in farmland in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and no basketball, you know, so I, I never developed the skills. But uh, wrestling was something I loved from the beginning. And I dedicated my training to becoming a better wrestler. Like a lot of young guys got enamored with weightlifting or bodybuilding or whatever. For me, it was all about using the weights as a means to the end. And of course, after high school, uh, I was very interested in physical education. I I got my degree in health and physical education Mm -hmm. from Westchester State Teachers College, which was a they 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 had a specialty program in PE and taught school uh, for a couple of years as a health and PE teacher and also coach wrestling. But um, I, I realized I like working with adults more than children. And uh, I had always had my finger in the fitness industry from the very beginning before there was a fitness industry. Yeah. And I had, I had my first job as a uh, undergrad. Uh, in 1972, working at the first Nautilus gym in Pennsylvania. I, uh, I started like a lot of young guys. My dad had bought me a, 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 a barbell and some weights. And I, I followed the courses of the time, the old York barbell courses. And, you know, whatever I could find is uh, old school magazines like Strength and Health. Right. Uh, there, there was a wonderful magazine called Iron Man by Perry Rader. Not the modern, glitzy, steroid-laden thing that you see now. But, I mean, back in the day when, you know, people looked like normal people. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I was always interested in physical improvement to make my given game, grappling, better. But uh, I wrestled NCAA Division One. I. I was a good wrestler. Uh, but after graduation, you know, where do you go with wrestling? So I was looking for something to fill the void. And I tried many martial arts. I tried Bondo. A lot of people never heard of that one. That was the mother art of Muay Thai. Before there was Muay Thai, there was Bondo. Bare knuckle, uh, pretty rough. Plus, they had a grappling component to Bondo called mm. Python Staff. Uh, I tried Russian Samba. Yeah. A lot of ex-college wrestlers. Uh, there was a uh, Russian immigrant in North Philly that was teaching and I was quite inter- interested in that. And I tried various forms of karate and kung fu, but striking wasn't for me. I liked grappling. Yeah. And I discovered the Gracie brothers in 1989. Meanwhile, I was training, working as a fitness director at you know various health clubs and so forth, uh, and was really fascinated with the Gracie brothers. So I started around 89, back before they had the Gracie Academy. Yeah. Still working out of Horion's garage. Where, where, so where did you find these guys in, in, uh, in 89? Were they out in that Philly area? No, not at all. I was the guy that brought them to the East Coast. As a matter of fact, Hoist Gracie signed a picture. Thank you, Steve and DC Maxwell, my then wife. Yeah. For bringing Gracie Jiu-Jitsu to the East Coast. Oh, cool. Um, I, uh, I went to, I had a friend that was all very involved with fitness 
but he opened a video store. It was called a How to Do It video store. It was those old uh, cassette tapes. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. are making a comeback right now, actually. The and, uh, VHS? Yeah. Yes. That's <laughs> awesome. Track. Yeah, oh, yeah. So I, I got, uh, it was a How to Do It video store, which was like really cutting edge back in the 80s. Yeah. And they had tutorials on almost anything you, you, you can imagine. Now, remember, this is all pre youtube pre-internet sure. you know it was none of that stuff i didn't even have a you know those cell phones were non-existent you know yeah, you still totally. had the, the yeah so it was kind of a revolutionary idea and in the store they had tutorials and anything you could think of like uh, how to deliver a baby or emergency medicine how to fix your sink how to install a dishwasher you know how to roof a house Anything you could think of. Wow. But in one section, they had like exercise and martial arts. And they had this, all these self-defense videos, which I was quite interested in. And I saw this Gracie in action video of uh, Jorge and Gracie and his brothers in real fights down in Brazil. Yeah. And, and, and I was like, whoa, this looks really good. I mean, this looks like something I could apply my wrestling skills to. Yeah. And um, lo and behold, a buddy of mine called and said, hey, did you hear? The Gracies are doing a seminar in New York. I said, man, count me in. Yeah. I went up and I was blown away, blown away. I couldn't believe that uh, I, I had a chance to mess around with the uh, voice. Yeah. It was just a skinny teenager who didn't even speak English. Yeah. And Hoyler, it was tiny. And uh, I couldn't believe these skinny guys could kick my ass. Yeah. I mean, as a senior in college, I was 18, 2, and 1, uh, in, in Division I NCAA wrestler. Yeah. That's a pretty good record. That's good. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I, I was no slouch. And I was pretty strong at that time in my heyday. I guess it was probably about, uh, I like 38 maybe when I discovered these guys. Yeah. And uh, I said, man, sign me up. How do I learn this? Totally. And I says, look, the only. The only way to do it is come out to California. So I had just opened up my own gym. And I had, my time was my own. I, I was doing one-on-one -on -one clients and right. so forth. So uh, I started going out to the Gracie Academy. Well, the Gracie Academy didn't exist when I first went. Yeah. But they did just opened up in Carson. And uh, I started going out. And I would go out with uh, like $1,000 for private lessons and when I run out of money, I'd come back up. Go back and make the <laughs> and Horian started throwing wow. the throwing the the group classes in for free, you know. And uh in those days, you know, private lesson with Horian was like a hundred dollars. And uh if I just got one move out of that, I called it my hundred dollar move and I was very happy to get you, that it move. was worth it. Wow. It was worth it. And in the meantime, I had opened up Maxercise, which was the first BJJ gym on the Eastern Seaboard. Before Marcelo Garcia, uh, before Henzo Gracie, before any of those guys. And we're going way back to Craig Kukok, Tom. You know, oh, yeah. Dirty Dozen, yeah. Who actually taught in my place for a little while. And I was merely a blue belt. I got my blue belt in six months because of my wrestling. Yeah. So here I am a blue belt teaching. I put mats in my personal training gym and I started getting so many guys coming in. I had to renovate my second floor. It was like this really old uh, 
building in Philadelphia, really old. I mean, it looked like something out of a Rocky Balboa movie. Yeah. I mean, it was really pretty rough, man. And uh, I, I would just, you know, I worked day and night with some of my students and tried to renovate this thing myself and uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't go through any of the, uh, the licensing. Yeah, all the permitting <laughs> and all that stuff. Good. Yeah, I just did it, man. Just make it happen. You know, yeah. And I put mats up there and I'd have guys come in. And I was a former wrestling coach, and I had a degree in, in physical education. I knew how to run a practice. Sure. You know, I, I knew how to teach, but I didn't have the specific jujitsu knowledge at that time. But I did my best. I mean, yeah. what else was it going to do? There was no one around. Yeah. And then I would go out, get a bunch of new moves, a bunch of new ideas. In the meantime, Horian came out with some instructional videos, and we practiced those religiously. Uh, at one time, I had 250 guys filling through my place. Wow. Not all at once. Yeah. But that's, yeah, they were on the books. And that, yeah. that's a pretty hard school, you know, by any standard, no even doubt. by today's standard. And, you know, it just built from there. And then in uh, right about 93, I'd already been a purple bottle that time. Uh, the Gracie started sending people out to me, by the way. Like uh, I was going out there so much. They started sending people to me. Yeah. And uh, Hoist, Hoist lived with me for almost a month one time. And uh, I introduced him to his uh, now ex-wife. But, oh, no uh, kidding. At that time, yeah, she was one of my trainers at uh, Maxercise. And uh, they fell in love, and he took my best trainer back to California. With him. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> That's awesome. So they're sending guys out to you at this point. So, well, yeah. Uh, they, they would send different guys, and they would stay for a while. And then Horian started coming out and doing seminars and so forth. And uh, Horian himself came out for the very first seminar in Philadelphia that I co-hosted and you know, everything just kept building. And then Horian came up with this idea for, Hey, you know what? Let's showcase how good jujitsu is. A lot of people don't know it. They don't know what it is. They don't realize the effectiveness of it. And in a mono a mono fight, if you don't know how to fight in the ground, you can be in a lot of trouble. Yep. So I came up with this idea for the ultimate fight championship. Yeah. And they have been doing fights like this in Brazil for quite a while. And uh, he said, let's build uh, like a cage because rings are problematic. People can hold on to the ropes, you know, escape out from underneath the rope. Let's build something where there is no escape. And they just lock the door and let's just have people go and just do whatever they do. And I invested money in that first UFC. I was an investor along with my ex-wife. Oh, we, cool. we put money. Yep. And uh, it was truly a no holds barred situation. Yes, it was. There was no gloves, no hand wraps. You were allowed to pull hair. You were allowed to headbutt. Yep. You could use the point of your elbow. You could rabbit punch. You could stomp a guy on the ground. You could punch in the testicles. Yep. You you could bend fingers. You could do everything. The only thing you weren't uh, it was a gentleman's agreement because you know there was no points, no time limit at all. They locked the thing. You fought until someone quit or was unable to continue. And the only reason the ref was in there was to make sure that if someone was out, they would pull the guy off. That's right. And, uh, you know, that was like, whoa. No weight classes. No weight classes. Just two guys go in, lock the gate, fight. Unlimited time. And uh, I was pretty nervous. I mean, I, I had wrestled plenty with Hoist, you know. Yeah. I knew he was good. But – 
you know, I was also his personal trainer at that time. I had introduced him to uh, uh, super slow training. Yeah. Uh, it's a form of training that is very good for the joints. You know, this is traumatic enough without yeah. adding, you know, other traumas from silly weight training. Yeah. So I was very careful. And uh, I knew he was good. I, you know, he, he was flexible. He wasn't particularly strong. Uh, not a fast guy at all. But my God, he, he just showed the world, like, what happens when you don't know jujitsu, you know, in, in one-on-one place. It was, it like, changed, pretty it, amazing. It was It amazing. changed everything. And then we had people pouring into my gym. Man, yeah. After that, after that first UFC. And, uh, you know, the Gracie had always had this challenge. It was called the Gracie Challenge. Torian actually wrote an article in Playboy magazine somewhere in the mid to late 80s. I forget the exact you can probably look it up, but um, it, it was called the Gracie Challenge. And basically, he offered ten thousand dollars to anyone outside the style of jujitsu. They could beat him or his family. Wow! In a mano mano fight, there's tons of fights recorded of people going to the Gracie Academy, trying for that challenge. The way it was supposed to work was: here's my ten grand. You bring your ten grand. Uh-huh. We put it in a pot, and then whoever wins, we take. But guys would come in wanting a challenge and wouldn't have the money. So Horian started putting his students up against these guys, you know. I mean, in the beginning, they would take on the fights, but it got tiresome after a while because there's so many walk-ins wanting to fight. Yeah. And we started getting out of my place. You They're know, <laughs> we're, we're only like white, blue, and purple bots. We're saying, wait a second, you know, you want Hoist Gracie or Horian Gracie or Hicks and Gracie, you know. You don't want us. Uh, at this time, it was one big happy family, you know. Everyone was there at the old Gracie Academy. You know, on any given day, you could have Hickson teaching, Hoyce, Horion, uh, Hoyler, uh, even uh, Master Elliot Gracie would be there. It was an amazing time to wow. be involved with jujitsu. Wow. This is before the brothers started, you know, little infighting and splitting off and all that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'd have guys come into exercise. And it was always counts in some kind of like, well, we like to do a style comparison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we yeah. say, what do you mean style comparison? Do you punch? Yeah. Do you kick? Yeah. So you want to knock me out, right? Well, yeah. So yeah. you mean you want to fight? Right. You don't want a style comparison. You want to fight. Yep. And they say, well, yeah. We <laughs> always get them to admit they wanted to fight. And I'd set up a camera. You know, we would record the whole thing. So there'd be zero questioning about what happened. And even at our low level at that time, going against uh, non-grapplers, it was pretty easy, actually. You know, the strikers were quite easy. The Tang Sudo, Taekwondo, yeah. uh, karate, you know. Boxers a little tougher, but still pretty easy. Uh, Muay Thai tougher, uh, you would take some hits yeah. because they were – they knew how to clinch. Yeah. Fight from the right, clinch. Right. The guys that were a nightmare were the wrestlers. Yeah. I can wrestlers imagine. that knew how to box. We, you'd almost always end up at the bottom of those guys. Yeah. And submitting a guy with no shirt on, a lot of times they want, they refuse to, Super you know, they, they want to be bare chested. Damn, slick. It would take a while. Yeah. Take a while to submit these guys, but eventually you would. And uh, judo players also. Sure. Very tough guys. Sure. Really hard to put in the bottom. You could, but it wasn't easy. I call it wrestling, so easier for me than some guys. But, you know, we never lost a fight, ever. 
and we had dozens, and I had them all on video. Man, I wish I wish I knew what happened to those old old No cassettes. doubt. Maybe my, ex, my ex-wife has them somewhere. Does, oh, she's got a whole market ahead of her, man. If she wanted to capitalize on that, holy cow. Man, I should I, I should uh, call her and find you out whatever to happened to those yeah, things, man. Yeah, <laughs> That's amazing. So, I mean, you're, you're right. Yeah, so that was the origins, the beginnings of jiu-jitsu in the East Coast. Yeah. And I just grew. And then, you know, as I grew, uh, schools started popping up everywhere, yep. you know. But then there was a problem because there was not that many qualified instructors at that time. And there was guys flying up from Brazil and their purple belt would mysteriously change to black belt by the time they landed in Miami. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a lot of guys, you know, that really were there. Was, I mean, listen, in the in the late in the land of the blind, the guy with one eye is the king. So That's even it. though they were like purple belts and stuff, they were still like gods compared to guys that didn't know any grappling at all. You know? Sure. Uh, so, you know, you had all these guys popping up everywhere. And of course, there was plenty of legitimate guys who come up too. Yeah. But uh, at that point, uh, Elliot Gracie decided he want, he needed to change things and start the instructor training program. And that was a program designed by uh, uh, Master Hoyer and Gracie and Master Elio to teach people how to teach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being a former physical education uh, instructor and wrestling coach, I really appreciated that because sure. they laid it out step-by-step way to take a rank beginner and make him pretty decent within a year or so. And uh, I was the first person to graduate from that instructor training program and get my certificate. Wow. So I was very grateful. And uh, there's been a bunch of guys. Now, there were a couple of guys at the Gracie Academy that were certified under Orion and Elia that were teaching there. But, you know, they were guys that were already in the academy. There's three guys, as a matter of fact. One is named Richard Bressler, who uh, just wrote an awesome book called Worth Defending about the early days Worth defending. of jiu-jitsu in the U.S. It's worth checking out. Uh, he, he was probably like student zero of the Gracie's here in the U.S. He, he was actually Horian's roommate when Horian was, you know, doing odd jobs and cleaning houses. And uh, uh, Horian had a couple uh, uh, jobs in the movie industry. He okay. was uh, like the fight coordinator for uh, okay. the uh, that Gary Boosie and uh, Mel Gibson movie. What was it? Oh, what, uh, lethal, like a lethal weapon? Yeah, lethal weapon. He okay. was a fight coordinator right. for him. That's he awesome. even took the part of a stuntman in the one scene. Rene Russo was unable to throw the stuntman because they didn't know how to make themselves like their big, yeah. strong guys. And uh, he, he could make even a rank beginner look like a hero. He was just so skilled. And so she threw him through a plate glass cool. window. Okay. Yeah, that's that, awesome. that's, that's Horian. Like, that's awesome. One of the bad guys. So cool. So that was the early days, man. That's how it all got started. And then you ended up, I mean, you competed quite a bit in jujitsu as well. And you were also bringing in, you were bringing in that physical culture too. Cause if I, if I remember correctly, I mean, you were one of the first or maybe the first uh, humans to bring things like kettlebells and and things like that into, um, you know, kind of more of a mainstream sort of thought. Is that right? That is correct. I was on the ground floor of that whole kettlebell movement. Uh, you have to credit Pablo Sassolian for the guy. Sure. But see, here's the thing. I, I, I had trained the in the early days. 
in my younger days, you know, mostly barbell training. Yep. And, uh, you know, usually what I, what I found that you pretty much hit your genetic peak within three to five years. So I had my heyday in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people we get as strong and muscular as they're ever going to get pretty early, yeah. usually three to five years, depending on how they're training. Now, if you're grossly overtraining or not training hard enough or whatever, uh, maybe you'll still get results later in life. But assuming that you're training progressively and you're training hard enough to get the stimulation, you'll you'll meet your you'll reach your genetic goal, your peak within three to five years. And that's a real source of frustration for a lot of guys because there's this myth in the the muscle diet industry that you have this unlimited potential for getting yeah. stronger and stronger and bigger and bigger. No, you do not. It's a lie to sell, you know, fake supplements and you sure. know, programs that really don't work. And almost anything will work if it's progressive and it's simulating enough to the body. Right. But what I, what I found was, uh, well, we'll backtrack a little bit. I discovered Nautilus by Arthur Jones, the high intensity yeah. training system in 1972. I had read a whole bunch of articles by him and the old Iron Man, a couple in strength and health. And I was fascinated by, by his ideas and his concept of the thinking man's barbell. And then when he did that uh, West Point study, uh, Project Total Conditioning at the uh, West Point Military Academy, uh-huh. wow, the results were stunning. And uh, I trained pretty much only Nautilus from 72 through uh, 75 and got great results conditioning. I was as lean as I've ever been, uh, really amazing. And I didn't miss the barbell at all. Yeah. Not even a little, my joints felt better. It was very hard training, though. very high intensity. But yeah. then I went through a phase where I was, uh, kind of job jumping and, uh, moving around a bit, didn't have access. So I started applying the same principles to body weight training. Mm. And so forth. And uh, later, I got a bunch of jobs in the fitness industry at various locations. One was uh, Club Nautilus in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. And then later, uh, I worked at a chain down in Virginia for a while. Then uh, I got a job at uh, the Society Hill Club. And I actually put a Nautilus line in there for them, became their fitness director. And uh, I was... This is very early before even personal training existed. Yeah, that wasn't even a thing, really. Yeah, the first time I realized someone would pay me good money to be a personal yeah. trainer, I was like blown away, man. But, you know, I I, I had a lot of training in, in Nautilus principles, and I felt very comfortable working with people. It was uh, then when I opened up my place in 90, uh, the, the club I was working at, uh, the sheriff came in one day and foreclosed in the mortgage. Apparently, the owner had not been paying his bills. <laughs> and there was a huge staff of people that depended upon this place for their livelihood. And he, they just came down and shut it down. Man. And there I was. I had just bought my first home. And I had just a new, brand new baby boy. And here I was without a source of income. Luckily, I had been saving for a rainy day. And I had been buying hammer strength equipment, which was new on the market. Oh, yeah. It was basically base. Well, there was the old Nautilus leverage equipment, which are real dinosaurs. And then the son of Arthur Jones came up with this concept of using uh, leverage 
and making uh, plate loaded machines. And I had been buying these slowly but steadily and putting them in the row home of my Philadelphia row home basement there. And uh, <laughs> I, I had like a starter line of about 10, 10 pieces of equipment. And I'd buy them here. Uh, I was buying a lot of them from Dr. Ken Leesner up in Valley Stream, New York. Okay. He's a real pioneer in strength training and uh, competitive powerlifter, but he applied the HIP principles to powerlifting. Uh, so little by little, I had been putting these machines in my basement. I, you know, I had plenty of free weights and dumbbells and stuff. So when the place went out, one of my clients by the name of Bernie Spain, who owns this huge chain of uh, uh, like uh, greeting cards and gifts. Yeah, Spain's uh, cards and gifts, I think it was called at that time. Uh, The guy went from like, uh, you know, just just barely struggling to get by to becoming a multimillionaire overnight. I mean, a lot of hard work. Yeah, sure. And Bernie Spain actually was giving lectures at Wharton Business School. You know, that's how famous he became yeah. in the business world because he just had a formula and he worked it. And so he actually provided me with the space that was unrentable at 707 Chestnut Street. And uh, man, the place was trashed. It used to be uh, an old textile manufacturing plant back in the 1800s. And it was just, the building was in pretty bad shape. So I got a couple uh, uh, high school football players to come in and we just cleaned that place out, man. It took us two weeks. You know, we got a dumpster and throwing crap out the window, you know? Yeah. No, <laughs> and no permits, nothing, man. We and just that's did what it. Came and, that's and, I, and then I had to drag all those machines, just man them, carrying up a flight of stairs, put oh, them back yeah. together. Man, it was backbreaking, but we got it done. And that was the starter line. And, you know, even though it was kind of a crude facility and the, the equipment was okay, you yeah. know, I also got bought some uh, old vintage Nautilus equipment and uh, set it up. Uh, what we lacked in fancy facility, we more than made up for with service. And yeah. I had one of the first one-on-one personal training studios in Philadelphia. So cool. And we, uh, our client list was like a who's who of Philadelphia. Yeah. I mean, there were some real luminaries. They liked the service. Yeah. They really did. We had a great rep, you know. I was the trainer for the, the owners of the Philadelphia Eagle football team, Jeff so, and Christina Laurie at the time. And that was some great seats for me, man. That's awesome. Yeah, dang right. That's awesome. Oh, that's so cool. I, uh, yeah, no, that, that, that's how the whole thing got started. That's so cool. And yeah. uh, I got involved with Super Slow at that point. Uh, There's a fellow by the name of Ken Hutchins, a genius guy. Yeah. Uh, because I had a lot of elderly people. It was really weird. Here I had this upstairs with all these young guys coming in, you know, wanting to do martial arts. And then downstairs, the average uh, age of my clientele were about 45, 50, and probably 60% females, women. And for them, uh, many were frail, had uh, health conditions and so Mm -hmm. forth. So the super slow was an excellent way to work these people out. And I was quite involved with it myself. But at that time, uh, there was a lot of bashing of the whole high-intensity training model. And, you know, uh, there was a bashing of machine training as non-functional and this and that and other than. And, you know, right about this time, CrossFit started up. 
Uh, Ashtanga Yoga has started just a few years before that, you know, as fads in the U.S. Of course, the aerobic dance phase had always been part of it, you know, step aerobics and all this kind of stuff. So uh, I started having my doubts because it was just some of some of the arguments actually seemed somewhat logical to me at awesome. the time. And I was looking for something because I'd already met my genetic potential. Yeah. And I was feeling like a little bit of a midlife crisis. You know, I'm getting uh, I'm in my 40s at this point. So I started looking at how did people used to train back in the olden days yeah. before steroids, before fancy equipment? What were people doing? And, you know, I looked at, you know, dinosaur training with sandbags. And yep. of course, I was always into bodyweight training. Sure. Uh, you know, using uh, gymnastics type exercises. Um, then I uh, started uh, reading Milo magazine, which is uh, oh yeah, strength sports. That I, I read Pavel Sitsoli's first article on kettlebell training. Very funny article. Uh, vodka, pickle juice, and kettlebells. And kettlebells. As a, yeah, <laughs> as a, as a Kettlebells is a cure for a, a hangover. That's awesome. That's awesome. So um, I called him up. I, you know, I, I figured how many Setsolings can be in the phone book in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yeah. And uh, very nice. So we met at the Arnold Schwarzenegger Fitness Show. And uh, oh, I also dabbled in combat conditioning with Matt Fury. I always okay. knew about the I always knew about the Dons and the Bethaks. The yep. Hindu push-ups, Hindu squats. Right. Uh, not just Hindu. Plenty of Muslim wrestlers there in India. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that whole system. The I club remember swinging, that. You know? yes. And then Scott Sonning came out with a whole bunch of stuff That's with club right. bells and and uh, the grapplers toolbox and, you know, all that. And I, I kind of got really into Russian training uh, in my mind. I thought yeah. It was Russian training. I was just looking for something different. And... I sort of lost my faith a little bit in super slow because of, you know, all the bashing and this and that and the other thing. And, uh, yeah, I started getting interested in demonstrating strength. I was the guy that actually introduced the uh, kettlebell community to the Turkish ghetto. Oh, yeah. I taught Pavel that exercise. It became part of the curriculum of the RKC. Now, everyone and his brother is doing it. Is doing that, too. And this went on for quite a few years. And then. You know, eventually all good things could uh, come to an end. Uh, we ran that gym right in through to about 2002. Me and my ex-wife, we started in 90. But uh, the building got condemned. Yeah, and it was really old. It was yeah. starting to crumble, man. And so the owner was trying to decide whether to flatten it and make a parking lot or whether they were going to renovate it. So they decided to renovate. And at that time... We had to move everything out, everything. And what a nightmare. Can you imagine 17 no plus years of you know, equipment? And oh, my God. We found a temporary place to set up over in Jewelers Row in Philly uh, on the second floor. But it was like way smaller. We had to really scale things down. We put all this stuff in storage. I mean, it was a logistical nightmare. Yeah. And it pretty much cost me my marriage. We... Uh, we, that it was pretty much it, man. It was yeah. so much stress. Part we got behind in our taxes and, oh, my God. Yeah. You know. He had to realize that my ex-wife and I had no business to keep them at all. I was a school teacher. 
Yeah. 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 When I met her, she was a bartender. Yeah, you know, always interested, interested in the fitness and so forth. So here we open up this very successful gym that probably would still be going on to this day had the, had not the building been condemned. Yeah. But yeah. sometimes, you know, seeming disasters are a blessing in disguise. That's right. So I decided I was going to leave Philly. I had it. I'd always wanted to travel. And, uh, you know, I had been doing these seminars with the old RKC yeah. through Pablo and those guys. And I was, the, you know, their first certified instructor. And I've been at every single RKC in St. Paul, Minnesota. So I, I had a, my name was out there. The old Dragon Door publication, you know, they, That's they, right. they, they were very good at marketing. So my name started getting out. So uh, I decided I wanted to live in a camper van. I always had this dream of like being this nomadic guy, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's funny because before I got married, I was a real minimalist. Yeah. I pretty much lived one room places. You know, everything I owned was pretty much in one bag. Yeah. I could move within 20 minutes, you know? Remember the old Robert De Niro movie uh, with uh, uh, Heat? Heat. Yeah. 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 As soon as you said that. And remember he said. I thought of yeah, I, I can pack up and, 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 and leave anywhere within 20 minutes. Yep. I remember <laughs> and I, I remember reading something. I remember reading something you wrote, you know, a while back where you were saying, you know, I, I've got the majority of my things. I can put them in this one bag. And I remember seeing a picture of you with this small bag and I can fit almost everything in there. Yeah. Oh, so it was a real minimalistic thing. So I I, uh, I moved in this camper van. It was actually bought for me by a former client. Oh, wow. uh, a professional baseball player, David Bell, he used to play with the Phillies and uh, San Francisco Giants. He's now the uh, the manager for the Cincinnati Reds. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he it was sitting in his driveway, this awesome camper bed. It was basically uh, a Dodge Sprinter that had been outfitted yeah. by Westphalia. Uh, Westphalia is a German company. Very slick. Really cool. It was like the Swiss Army knife of uh, of like little RVs. And uh, a Sprinter van is basically a Mercedes work van. Sure. And, uh, you know, with the Mercedes engine. So really cool van. And I was sitting in his driveway when I flew out. I became his personal trainer. Uh, just him. And his brother would come in uh, occasionally. Uh, his dad was Buddy Bell. The, uh, he was oh, a manager okay. for the Kansas City yeah. Royals. Yep. And uh, his, his brother also played pro baseball. And I didn't know much about baseball, but I knew about training people. Yeah. So I, I stayed there with Dave for about a year. And then he decided to retire. And uh, I just started my nomadic existence. The nomadic. I drove back and forth in the U.S., coast to coast, eight times. Holy cow. I mean, you did that for a number of years. Am I right? I mean, you I, were- yeah, just roaming around. I was living off my savings. But and- then I started running out of money, you know. But then you wasn't you making money. Seminars. You know, I, I was doing a little bit of. Uh, 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 I, I would have some correspondence with people, but I didn't need much money, you know. Yeah. But I started running out, so uh, I hooked up with a gal, uh, Teresa Blazy. Uh, we had been seeing each other. Uh, I, I met her at one of the old RKC kettlebell things, and yeah. we really liked each other. That was pretty lonely, you know. Uh, I always liked female companionship, and sure. so. Uh, she helped me start a website and I started doing online personal training before it was even a thing. 
Yeah. Because I, I would get people emailing me, well, what should I do? What, you know, what can I do? I was giving away free information. All of a sudden I realized, wait a second, you know, you could actually have people kind of sign up and just yeah. become like clients. Yep. Make a business. Online. That's right. Know? And I didn't even know how to use a laptop, man. Yeah. I mean, I had a, I didn't even have a cell phone until I was in my 50s. And I never learned how to use a laptop or the computer. Yeah. But when Apple, well, my first thing I really loved was those old Blackberries. Oh, yeah. And I had those Blackberry thumbs. Yeah. But then when Apple came out with its products, they were made for guys like me. Totally. Who had no tech at all. And man, when I got that iPad, that just changed my whole life. And yeah, you know, I was perfect for guys. You know, I grew, I was born in the, the, the uh, 1952. So <laughs> that's awesome. It was like a revolution to me, man. Totally. Revolution to me. And I was able to actually start an online business. Yeah. Online and, business. And you've been and, in that ever since. Yeah. So, you know, I, uh, I, I did take a, a brief job at uh, club Genentech. Genentech is a bio, uh, oh yeah, uh, but, but yeah, pharmaceutical company out oh, yeah. on the uh, in South San Francisco. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there was this huge gym where I was working out of. Really, and it was like it was, yeah, it was like a perk for the employees. They had thirteen thousand employees at that site. Yeah, it was like I, a small city, man. It was and, huge, you know, though. yeah, we, we'd have like a thousand visitors uh, a week in that gym, man. And they had this huge array of stuff they were. Offering people, even I was teaching jujitsu, man. That's so cool. Paid, you know, at this gym, I grew know. up in. Uh, I actually grew up in Vacaville, California, and so, Genent- so you know, yeah. So and they, yeah. we had a Genentech. I mean, Genentech was right there. It still might be the largest employer in Vacaville to this day. Um, they got a monster facility out there. I didn't realize they had, they had added the gym and all that kind of stuff too. That's awesome. Yeah, it was a one hell of a gym, man. It's yeah. called Club, Club Genentech, and so. Cool. Uh, it seemed like, you know, the uh, the owner of Genentech uh, and the owner of Google sort of had a friendly competition to see who could provide the best perks for their employees. Yeah, the coolest facilities. And yeah. I was always shocked at, like, how well-treated the employees were, you know? So they, cool. they had a vested interest in keeping them. I remember uh, there was, like, a, uh, a sales meeting of all the sales reps for Genentech, and I was invited to speak uh, as a health practitioner and fitness guy. And so I, I had to like a little speech. And during the thing, they gave all the salespeople free iPhones. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, yeah. That was like, whoa. Yeah. yeah. It's that, a, that, that was like the kind of perks and the way. Yeah, as a real kind of, Oprah, Oprah moment. But I was not cut out for the corporate environment. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. No, no, no. I had been, I had been doing my own thing, you know, and I, I had this, you know, having to kowtow to the, you know, and basically I was, you know, from a different era, somewhat politically incorrect. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, which isn't going to fly in the bay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it didn't yeah. fly in the bay, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, you know, things like, you know, uh, you, you weren't allowed to use the word fat. Yeah, I, I believe that. Right, yeah, right. you had to say overweight. You might hurt right. someone's feeling, you know. Sure. Totally. Yeah. yeah, I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, for me, I, I couldn't stand it. So I left Genentech. And I went to Tahiti and I stayed three months in Tahiti training um, a, a group of grapplers for the Society Island tournament that they would have every year. So rad. Oh. So that was pretty, that was pretty rad. And then uh, of course I stopped off in Hawaii and 
met up with uh, uh, in in uh, Maui a good friend of mine, Luis Heredia, who was uh, Hicks and Gracie's uh, first black belt, uh, not American black belt, but first black belt period. So uh, Luis, yeah, he's he's still running uh, Maui Jiu Jitsu, and uh, at that point I realized, you know. Knowledge is money yep. and knowledge is power. And I had years and years and years of experience. And a lot of people would like to know some of the things in my head. Yeah. You know? And I never consider myself an expert or anything in any of this stuff, but I just had a lot of experiences. So I started going on the road and I would go and do seminars pretty much all over the globe. Yeah. It started with, you know, a seminar overseas, then I would come back. The first yeah. one was actually uh, in Iceland. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, I had some connections in Iceland and uh, Denmark. And then uh, I would come back and live in my camper van. Uh, the, 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 the most amazing thing about that whole camper van experience was the fact that I actually had a woman living, uh, willing to live with me. And it, convinced to come along for the ride. It takes a real special gal. That's give a, up the material life. That's you know? that's a true story, and that's some. You've got some. You know, that's a, that's a pretty solid game you got going on there too. You make that work. No, that's awesome. <laughs> so one seminar would lead to another seminar. It got to the point where we weren't even in the U.S. anymore. Yeah. What do you do with a camper van? Yeah. I mean, it was valuable. You know, yeah. uh, the the baseball player had bought it for me, but I, then I bought it at a really reduced price back from him. Yeah. So it was still worth a lot of money. I mean, yeah. there were almost uh, there was only five hundred of those ever made. The Dodge Sprinter Westphalia, oh, so wow. it was worth money. So that's when I really realized the power of the internet. I sold it to a guy in L.A. sight unseen, just on pictures yeah. in my word, and I sold it to him while I was in Germany. <laughs> I was in Cologne, Germany. Power and I sold internet. this van to this guy, and I had put it in storage in Seattle. So he drove up, I mailed him the key and the title, and he had wired me the money. And, you know, How it, you? Was, it was like, wow, now I, I cut the tether. I have nothing holding me back. That's right. I was basically a homeless dude. And the first time I went to Europe, I had this huge 65-liter roller bag. And... I, I just put everything in it, you know, and I I went to London and I, after three ch train changes and walking in these cobblestone streets, I says, man, I got to get rid of this bag. I have too much shit. Yeah. So I, w I went right on down to like an outdoor supply store and bought myself a nice little travel backpack and got rid of half my crap right there. Just left it. And then, even that bag was too big. I, uh, I ended up going to Russia, in Moscow. And, uh, man, what a nightmare. We Because we couldn't read Cyrillic, we missed our stop. <laughs> and I was loath to go back down into the uh, subway because it was, it was, like, really confusing for Westerners, you know? Yeah. And no, no one could speak English, so. You know, you're pretty much on your own. So I ended up hiking about two and a half miles to the place where I was going. And uh, at that point, I says, even this bag is too much. 
So I got it down even smaller. Oh. I ended up traveling with a 35 liter bag. And for anyone that ever wants to do a nomadic experience, the less you have, the better you feel. Dang right. I believe that. And I became a real expert in technical apparel, you know, stuff that you wash in the sink and dry overnight. Yeah. Tough stuff, stuff that you could travel in, you could work out in, you could hike in, you know, and would be quick dry. And of course, we became sun chasers. I, uh, I spent a winter in Scandinavia. We were in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Iceland. And I said to Teresa, I said, man, this is the last time. I mean, it was cold. Yeah. I said, hey, we're nomads. We can go anywhere. Go anywhere you so want. I typed in sunny, uh, uh, sunniest place on earth or happiest, sunniest place on earth. Yeah. And S- Sydney, Australia came up. And I had always wanted to go to Australia. So I, I, I had, I knew no one, you know, I had some people asking me, when are you coming to Australia? But I knew no one. We just went, we just went. And I liked it a lot. I liked Australia. Beautiful climate. Uh, just fantastic. You know, when it's winter up north, it's like summer down south. Yeah. You know, they're on the other side of the equator. And uh, we really liked it. And then I started getting regular gigs in um, both New Zealand and Australia. And uh, then it'd be time to go. And we would move every two, three weeks. Sometimes we'd stay a month or two, you know. I love- Aust- Austria, Germany, uh, almost all the uh, 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 Balkan countries, uh, Croatia, and I love Croatia, uh, Serbia, you know, I, I've, I've been to Hungary and the former Czech Republic and, you know, all the all those places down there, Bosnia. More, you've lived more life than, than you know, a culmination of, of 10 men um, because of that too. I mean, your willingness to go and you guys, I want to make sure you guys get to answer some questions. So you guys put your hands up um, and, I'll, and I'll start calling on you guys and bringing you in. But like you've been... You, because of just your willingness to, to say yes and to just pull the trigger into it's kind of that whole concept of addition by subtraction too and getting rid of the stuff that like we said in heat i love that you referenced that movie um because it's so true it's just you know, will it, being able to it's not just the willingness but it's the ability to pick up and go at the moment's notice if you want to do something it has allowed you to live so much more life than so many other people and i think that is just i think that's phenomenal well, as a young man, after I quit my teaching job, uh, yeah, I was living very nomadic, yeah. very minimal lifestyle. It was only after I got married I started really accumulating all this stuff, you know, and I realized it doesn't really make you very happy. You know, yeah. you start getting owned by your stuff. Now, you, you, the old George Carlin, you know, uh, maybe right. you've seen that comedy act. You That's know, right. Carlin was the People work jobs that they hate to buy shit they don't need. To impress and, people. You know, and then they even rent even more space to get even more stuff. Yep. And, you know, it gets to the point where the stuff owns you. Right. you know, and then you're worried about keeping the stuff. And, That's right. You know, That's it right just now. gets to be this crazy cycle. That so, of, uh, you know, I kind of fell into it. You know, it's easy to fall into that kind of stuff, you know. But now we come to present, right about 2020. I've been using an, astro- uh, an astrologer, by the way. I, I, uh, this guy I was introduced to uh, probably about 2005 or six. He's been uncannily accurate. He doesn't predict exact things. He predicts uh, like an overview. Got it. 
And he had told me in two, uh, 2019, get off the road, go back to the U.S. There's going to be some real big problem happening the world over, but particularly the U.S. Huh. And he kept, he said, I don't know exactly what this is going to be, but I, he kept using the word martial, like martial law and, and you know, uh, lockdowns and shutdowns. I mean, he knew about this. Interesting. Way before. So I bought a tiny house in Spokane, Washington, had it transported here to this little tiny place on the Olympic Peninsula in the Pacific Northwest. It's called Port yeah. Townsend. It's out kind of in a very rural area. Yeah. Uh, Trace's father had died, leaving her aged mother living by herself. Her mother's in her, uh, like, 85, I believe. And uh, she didn't want her mom living alone. And her mother had this five-acre property and a big house. But I didn't want to be in the big house. Yeah. I wanted my own space. Yeah. So I bought this tiny house. It's uh, eight and a half by uh, 22. That's awesome. I'm I'm in it right now. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, so we pulled off the road. And, you know, I had this online program going the whole time. Yep. And uh, during this so-called pandemic, when they were shutting all this stuff down and yeah. ruining so many of my friends jujitsu yes, schools and, you know, uh, I don't want to get into politics, but, you know. I know. It. I, uh, I was able to thrive. I was okay, you know, because I sell uh, online videos and yeah. stuff like that. But uh, I started questioning kettlebells and club bells and some of this explosive dynamic training, you know? And I quickly realized that it's not very sustainable. I'll be 70 this year, by the way. And, you know, I I, I suffered a lot of injuries in wrestling and a bunch in jujitsu. And, you know, you go into a martial art or a combat sport, someone expecting to get injured. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's part of the game, right? Mm -hmm. You, 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 you sign off on that. Yep. But, your physical training should prevent injuries, not cause. Yep. And I was starting to see some real problems with my joints. And I realized, you know what? This explosive training and kettlebell training and all that just isn't all that. And I, 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 I don't think it's very sustainable. And I saw a lot of people that started with me with the kettlebells and the clubbells, uh, hip replacements, knee replacements, shoulder replacements. You know, as they got older, yep. they were destroying themselves. My ex-wife had to have her hip replaced, and she blamed kettlebells. Yeah. Pablo Sassoli, the father of the kettlebell in the yeah. U.S., uh, he's had both elbows surgically operated on. Uh, when he was on the Joe Rogan show, they had, Joe says, well, how come you only do uh, swings and dips? And Pablo says, because I like it. What he failed to mention was he can't do he anything, can't else. anything else. He, can't, he used to love to climb rope and do pull. He can't. Yep. Dan John, his partner, you know, yeah. easy strength. Double hip replacement surgery. Wow. Brett Jones, nine knee surgeries. And I, you know, I, the litany goes on and on and on. Yeah. Back problems. And the shearing force and the impact of kettlebell training really damages and destroys the joints. Over time, it erodes joint health. And it's, it's just, there's no benefit that kettlebell training can give you or sandbag training or club bell training. Not one benefit it gives you that you can't get better and safer doing something else. And are, are, so you're going back to, uh, are you 
like the pretty super, much super slow. Super slow. And, and one of the things I didn't mention, I got very interested in Sistema. Okay. Yeah. Very interested. I've been to Russia eight times. And uh I uh I like the Russian people. They're yeah. good people. Yeah. Uh, it really it really uh pains me to see totally. people mistreating Russian people. I, I heard that you know Russians were being attacked and beaten in various countries and it's insane. Heartbreaking. They're wonderful people. Yep, you agreed. Know? Agreed. That would that'd be like Americans being attacked and beaten because yep. we invaded Iraq and that's right. Those, uh, a, a government, you know. That's right. And you know, there's always a, a slant everywhere yep. without getting into the politics of the whole thing. But I trained Sistema. Uh, cool. I went eight times. I was on Russian military bases. Uh, I learned from some really top guys. And I'm not talking to and BJJ Sistema has a sort of bad rep because there were some videos of uh, this really big overweight guy, uh, Michael Riabko, mm-hmm. you know, uh, doing like. Um, like a section control, it was called. Uh, and, you know, that got on the Bushido list right away. Got it. <laughs> the, you know, but. The, uh, yes, meters. Yeah. Yeah, but the real Sistema, those guys are formidable, man. Yeah. I, I was studying Kazestnikov Sistema. He was the father of the Russian military martial arts. Got it. They, they were some badass dudes, man. Yeah, no doubt. Really, really good. And, you know, uh, Sambo is popular in Russia. Yeah, there's a version of it called Combat Sambo. Yep. But all the spec uh, spec ops groups, it's all the the uh, uh, not not the KGB anymore. What is it? The FSB or something? Right, right, right. Uh, they, they all they're all trained all in Sistema. Sistema, and it was real interesting to me because they were doing super slow, slow high tension push ups, slow squats. Um, they were definitely against kettlebells. Yeah, I, I got certified by a, uh, a Ukrainian national. His name is Colonel Alexander Maximsov. And Colonel Maximsov was absolutely against explosive training and kettlebells as being injurious to the body. And here's a guy that was in the former Soviet military, was a special ops guy, uh, colonel in the Ukrainian special police. And uh, I was I, I, I went to the Canary Islands for three months to train with him and learned a lot of really good uh, self-defense stuff that I mixed in with my Gracie self-defense. So I've kind of made like a little little hybrid kind of thing. Gentlemen, so, we're going uh, to have to add some of that to uh, to the list and checking out Sistema. Turner, I want to make sure we get some of you guys jumping in on here too. Turner, go ahead, sir. Thank you, sir, for being here. And you're such a cool person. I love your story. And my question for you, so I've done CrossFit for about seven years, and the main problem I've had is my diet, and what, in your, in, in your opinion, what is the perfect diet? Ooh. Well, there is no perfect diet. There was a guy by the name of Weston Price that went all around the world studying indigenous people at the turn of the last century. And what he found was he, he looked at everyone. He looked at the Inuit, who are mostly meat eaters. Mm-hmm. He looked at some of the blue zones where there are moderate protein, you know, uh, carbohydrate and, and high fat. Uh, he looked at people all over the world. And he determined that and, and these people were perfectly healthy in every way, by all parameters. He concluded that there is no perfect diet. The perfect diet is the one that you can stick with and you can eat. Mm. So how do you know whether your diet's working for you? Well, you're lean. You're not fat. 
for fat, you're eating too much, but it could also be, you know, some the denatured foods in your diet, the sugars and so forth, trans fats and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I know it's not the answer you wanted. Everyone wants a pat answer, but in truth, there, there really isn't an answer to that question, you know, but you can't go wrong making your food selections based on fresh fruits and vegetables, especially root vegetables. I'm not talking about potatoes or yams necessarily, but you know, there's wonderful vegetables that people don't even eat out there. They're just loaded with minerals and nutrition. Uh, you can't go wrong with lean meat. Yep. Good quality meats yep. and fish and eggs as your protein sources. And limited carbohydrate. I'd say limited because most people in the U.S. eat way too much carb too much. Yeah. and so forth. Yeah. And it, it, it's just, you know, yep. um, many people have problems with wheat and so forth, but you know, uh, you can't get wrong with. Uh, I think that's with the diet based like that. And, oh, don't forget water. Most people don't drink enough. Totally. You know, try to get a gallon a day. And I think I would also uh, look, take a hard look at CrossFit. Now, to, uh, full disclosure: my daughter is quite the CrossFit athlete. Yeah. <laughs> she competes in Pennsylvania. She was in Pennsylvania. She won the Pennsylvania Powerlifting Championship. Oh, did she really? She's wow. into, okay. Yeah, yeah, she's strong, yeah. man. Strong girl. Yeah. I mean, she's lifting unbelievable weights, and she's really into the heavy arm. But I keep telling her, look, man, your joints, there is such a thing as wear and tear. Every young guy thinks they're not going to wear out. I'm here to tell you, yeah. you wear yeah. out. <laughs> and every workout is like a like an insult to your body. You may not be getting like an acute injury, but you're getting subacute injuries every time you do some of that stuff. Yeah. And you're getting micro trauma to the joints. Yeah. And over time, you end up with terrible osteoarthritis. Yeah. Your spine, your shoulders, your knees. Just saying, you know. It's true. But, you know, if you're into it, you're into it. I've talked to Savannah about this many times and hey, it's her thing. It's but so funny. Just yeah. a word of warning. But no, thank you, sir. It's good. And, and honestly, I, and I think two, two things on there. One, um, the, uh, the diet thing, you know, my friend Rob, so Rob Wolf, and I'm sure you're familiar with Rob, um, as well. Right. So Rob, you know, he always says tinker, he says, eat real food, but then tinker, see, see how your body reacts and real food, eat real food is the basic foundation and don't overeat and see how your body responds to certain things. If you pay attention to those things, you're eating real food. You're making sure, like you said, that you are, you are relatively lean, then you're probably going to be okay. And your health is going to be, you know, is going to be solid. Um, and then on, on your daughter too, that's interesting. So we have a young man on here too, who is a, a Pennsylvania power lifting record holder uh, as well. So it's, it's very interesting. I wonder if, uh, if they'd have. Uh, he must know Savannah then, man. Uh, I wonder. Yeah. So I'll have to ask. So Aiden, if you know Savannah at all. Um, you'll have Savannah to, Maxwell, she's a young woman, uh, uh, 20s. Okay. Don't know her yet. Okay. She's really pretty. <laughs> all right, Aiden, we might have to do something about this. <laughs> uh, and Kaleo, go ahead, sir. Kaleo, you're up. Thank you, Mr. Maxwell, for coming on this morning. You're a fascinating guy, and I love your story. And this is just this has been really interesting. Um, I was wondering, with all your experience in in various combat sports, um, jujitsu specifically, I was wondering how how you handled jujitsu, how you rolled jujitsu. Personally, I'm 
a heavy, a heavy guard player. I would play guard a ton. And then I, I wrestled for uh, the previous season. And so I'm in this uh, mental conflict, right? Because I love playing guard. It's my favorite thing, but now I can throw people. And, and so I was wondering how, how you ruled jujitsu. Well, being an ex wrestler, I hated being on the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) Right through purple belt. My guard was basically getting space, standing up and taking them down. (laughs) I was a killer top player. But that started to bite me in the butt because I got against better and better guys, you know, top black belt guys that would put me on the bottom, whether I wanted to or not. And that's when I really knuckled down and started becoming, you know, more of a guard player. But I, I would recommend that every young woman take the Gracie Women Empowered course mm. and learn real, honest to God, straight self-defense. Yeah. Because I'll tell you something. In this day and age, it can be dangerous being a woman. Mm-hmm. And a lot of women are, uh, you know, suffer sexual abuse. I, I was shocked at the number of young women that have been raped. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And you, knowing how to defend yourself, I think, is absolutely essential. And sport jujitsu will not do that. I mean, just look what happened to Gary Tonin trying, you know, some of that stuff in yep. MMA, yep. some of that, you know, bottom guard game. Yep. You know, when, when you put punches and strikes and stuff. Uh, Changes it. But I'm not sure. I'm, my game was always take down and pass the guard as far as sports jiu-jitsu. But I was very lucky because when I learned jiu-jitsu, it was like a complete system. Defense against weapons. Defense against kicks. Punches. Any kind of grab, even hair grab and everything, you know. How to prevent guys from fish hooking or poking your eyes or I mean it's all in the original Gracie curriculum which you got to credit Asa Maeda. Maeda knew he was the guy that taught Carlos Gracie and you know yeah. he, he learned it from the old old Codicon before it became sport judo right but uh, my ex-wife DC Maxwell was the third woman in America to get a black belt in jiu-jitsu and uh but she was also the first person to graduate with the Women's Self-Defense Program for the Gracie Academy. So she knew that you need both, you know. And she uh, even – she never competed in the age group division. She went uh, into the young women's world when she was damn near 50 and won a bronze medal in world championship. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, and you're there's in- no reason why you can't do both, man. That's true. But your wrestling will help you a lot. Why not put people in the bottom, you know? Why not put people in the bottom? And you can always play guard, but in my, in my philosophy, you should know it all. You know, like Hickson Gracie actually have these T-shirts made. Hickson says, if you don't know self-defense, you don't know jiu-jitsu. It's true. It's and good. unfortunately, so many schools are just emphasizing the sport game, you know? They really, you know, I think it's hurting the students, you know? I do realize people love to roll. You know, I, hey, listen, I, I'm damn near 70. I'll be 70 in a few months, and I still like to roll. It's like a little chess match. But, you know, you, you got you got to know the, uh, the stand-up Make self-defense. Self-defense practice there, too. So good. Uh, Mr. Maxwell. I don't know whether that answered your question. Or not. Yeah. Cleo. You're welcome. Mr. Maxwell, uh, I, I'm such a huge fan. 
man, I mean, such a huge fan. I love your story. I love, I love your mindset. I love your experiences. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, to get to speak with you and, and have you on with these young men too, um, it truly is an honor too. So when we send out the, uh, when we send out the link, we want to make sure that we're pushing people to your, your site too, and, and, uh, to your training. And where would you have, have us go to Maxwell SC? Is there anything else you'd have us? Yeah, call? that's it. MaxwellSC.com. And, uh, you know, they can follow me on uh, Instagram. I'm always putting up videos and where I'm, what I'm doing and where I'm going. I will be back in the road now that all the. Are you going back on the road? Been, nice. been lifted. Yeah. Not, not full time, but, uh, I'm running a jiu-jitsu for a lifetime training camp and on the island of Ikaria, Greece, this summer. Oh. They can go on the website and get the the uh, the details. But Ikaria is one of five blue zones. A blue zone is where people live. Uh, an, an inordinate amount of people of the population live to over 100 years old. And I had gone to Ikaria every year for eight years straight during the summer. But then with the pandemic, I haven't been there for two years. So now I'm going back. I'm doing uh, this in affiliation with the uh, Ikaria surf camp. So people will be in the paddleboard and water kayak and surf on this beautiful little Greek island in the northern Aegean Sea. Oh. It's very rustic. It was never spoiled because it was so rocky. They couldn't build these big mega hotels and resorts. Yeah. So it's still very natural and has not been ruined like some of the Greek islands, you know? So, so some of the places are just party central, you know? So cool. Though. And, but this is really nice. So uh, we'll be doing a week-long camp, uh, Gracie stand-up self-defense, and, all, uh, and, you know, uh, the art of the soft roll, you know, how you can preserve your body. Yeah, stay with jujitsu into a band stage and not end up getting all busted up and hurt. And, you know, all the supportive things Like we will talk about some diet. Yeah. I'll go into more details about what I'm doing now personally. Uh, you know, uh, things like conditioning, mobility, you know, all the things to support your jujitsu lifestyle. So that will be in Ikaria this summer. Very cool. We'll make sure we link that in there too. Um, and thank just you. send people your own. Thank you. We just want to be able to send people your way. Um, like I said, just a wealth of a wealth of knowledge and, and just an awesome human being. Um, very, very grateful for you. Very grateful for you taking the time with these young guys. Yeah, my, my pleasure. And thanks for having me on your show. Oh man, it's a pleasure. You guys give a big thank you to Mr. Maxwell. Thank you very thank much. You, sir. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Very thank welcome. you, sir. Thank you, sir. So, so grateful. And uh, I'll reach back out to you because I got a little something I want to send you as well. Even though I know you're a minimalist, but I still want to send you a little something. Well, thanks. Awesome. I can always pass it forward. <laughs> yes, sir. Absolutely. Awesome. Right. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate you. All right. There you go. Mr. Maxwell sharing uh, a lot of stories with us uh, and just very cool to uh, get to speak to uh, quite literally a living legend in the health and wellness space. And uh, everything from you know jujitsu to minimalism to um, just so many amazing things that uh, we had some great conversations afterwards uh, about. So hope you guys enjoyed listening to Mr. Maxwell. Give him a follow. Check out anything he's done. There is a plethora to choose from. And uh, more importantly, we just appreciate you caring about those young heroes in your life and, and uh, leading by example and 
uh, asking them to do the same. Appreciate you all. Please give us a rate, comment, all that good stuff, and we'll catch you guys next time on The Essential 11. See ya.